our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Charlie Watts is dead. Some would say, Charlie who? Many would say, how are the Rolling Stones going to perform again? And he was the drummer for the Stones for many, many, well, ever since they began, I guess back in 1962, I think was when they got started. And uh, thinking about that, he died yesterday. Eddie Van Halen passed away a couple or three months ago now, lead guitarist for Van Halen. And, and these, these, these guys who play stadiums, and Susan, can you turn me down just a bit because I'm a little ringy in my own ears. But guys who played stadiums and, and concerts worldwide traveled the entire world, 30, 40, 50,000 people. And where does it get them? And, and for what? And I, I just hear Jesus saying, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, I don't know where Charlie Watts was with Jesus. I don't know what the relationship was. I don't pretend to know. That's not my job. But Jesus came to give us life. And not just stadium tours. Jesus came to give us life. That is life eternal that begins right now and continues on. Now, I, be I believe that. I, I believe in the life that Jesus gives us. That it is for now and it is for then. Paul rightly said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4, For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. So let me put it to you this way. If you're not living for, you're not really living. If you're not living for, you're not really living. Now, people live for all kinds of things, and some are temporarily satisfactory, and some are about success, and they're about notoriety, but we are living for life eternal. We're living for more than we could ever hope to experience in this life. Psalm 16, verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And you know what I realized about that? Those two verses, Psalm 16, 10, and 11. Verse 10, saying you won't abandon my soul to Sheol, it's followed by verse 11, that then says, in your presence is fullness of joy. You will make known to be the path of life. That is, the path of life follows Sheol. The path of life that David writes about in Psalm 16 is the life that stretches out beyond the grave. And that's the Christian life. It is promised land living. Promised land living, because it is always living for. It is always living forward. It is always living for eternity. And, and Moses is giving a beautiful picture of that. He is preaching promised land living. Remember, that's the context of the book of Deuteronomy. This side of the Jordan River, in the plains of Moab, looking across to Jericho, the people are going to go into the promised land, and he is preaching promised land living. This is now the summation, bringing together the commandments that they heard in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, random different uh, commandments that are shared by the Lord, and, and Moses is now bringing it together to say, this is your life. This is how you live in the promised land. This is how you live the promises. These are the words. 
to take to heart for your lives to come in the promised land. It's solid, practical application of Torah law already given, now applied to their lives. And you know the bulk of this sermon, the bases of the bulk of this sermon are the Ten Commandments. We talked about that back in Deuteronomy 5. He restates the Ten Commandments because now he's going back and picking them out one at a time and giving specific application of those commandments to, to make them understandable and practical in the way that they live. And so we're into commandments number three and number four tonight. That's, that's where we're, what we're going to deal with in Deuteronomy 14. Actually, we'll do 14 and 16. I'm going to come back to 15 on Sunday. So we're just going to skip that chapter for tonight. But commandments three and four, he's dealing with from 14 through 16. Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 11, quoting Exodus chapter 20, verses seven and eight. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He's already been applying that. He will more tonight. And Deuteronomy five twelve, remember, or what he says in Deuteronomy is observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God said back in Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Moses now in application mode says observe, which involves remembrance, but it's also remembrance put into action. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So these are the two commandments that we're going to focus on and think through. These are the backdrop for everything that we'll discuss tonight. These are about far more than avoiding a poorly discerned catchphrase. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain is not about the OMGs in text messages, although those bug me. But that's, that's a very superficial view of not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. We will get more into the depth of, the, of it tonight. It's not about taking the day off, which is a very superficial view of Shabbat. It's much bigger than that. We'll talk about that tonight. So I'm going to give this to you in two parts. Chapter 14 will be part one, a word of invocation. And chapter 16, words of celebration, part two. Words of, a word of invocation, part one, chapter 14, part two, chapter 16, words of celebration. And truly, I think something else you'll find is this is all about clarification. There are some things that we're going to discuss and see and, and, and look at tonight that I think, especially early on, will bring some clarification for some old confusions. So pay attention for that. Part one, a word of invocation, chapter 14, verse one. You, Moses speaking to Israel, are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. This was an old Canaanite ritual to Baal, the cutting and the shaving. You, you might even recall in, in 1 Kings where Elijah and the prophets of Baal were up on Mount Carmel and, and they start to call out to their God. Do you remember what they were doing? cutting themselves till they bled all over the place. And that's what he's talking about. You shall not do that. You don't do what the pagans do. You don't act as the pagans acted. He says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And I don't know if, you, if, if you've been catch, keeping up with this, how often the Lord, Moses says the Lord your God. Over and over and over, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, every chapter. I've been kind of highlighting it, circling it with purple, and, and I see it all over the place. The Lord your God. Focus on the Lord your God. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord, Yahweh, has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. By accepting 
the covenant, including those Ten Commandments, the people of Israel embraced and would invoke the name of the Lord as their God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your vain, name of the Lord in vain. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. They are now taking the name of the Lord. Don't do it in vain. You see what I'm saying? Christians, if you've taken the name of the Lord, Christian, don't do it in vain. Suddenly I realize how easy it is to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. When I was a kid growing up, that was, that was the cussing that I couldn't stand and never wanted to do. All kinds of cuss words out there. And they're all foolish and they're all stupid. But that one, man, that one, don't, don't take the name of the Lord my God in vain. And yet it's bigger. I have taken his name on myself. Don't take it in vain. It's not something blurted out in ignorance or stupidity. The word vain is shav. We've talked about this. Shav in the Hebrew, which means worthless. It means futile. It means inconsequential. I take the name of the Lord on myself, the name of Jesus, the name of Christ as a Christian. I take his name on myself. Now, am I gonna live as though that is inconsequential to my life? Is that, was that a feudal thing? Was that just a, a religious thing? Or is there substance there? Is there meaning when I take his name? In chapter 12, we talked about Moses calling, calling out the place which the Lord your God chooses to put his name, right? Shiloh at first, where the ark rested for some 369 years. And then it would be moved ultimately up to Jerusalem, the place of his name. But the value of that great city, the the, the wonder of Jerusalem is not its gleaming white Jerusalem stone construction. And that's beautiful. It's not the breathtaking gold and purple sunsets that, that... just blaze over the Mount of Olives, and that is stunning. It's not even Jerusalem's rich and storied and ancient history. Do you realize that the reason why Jerusalem remains on the map today is because that's the city where he put his name. That's why people know about Jerusalem. That's why it's so stirred up, because his name is there. God chose to establish that city as the place of his name. The three major religions of the world all fight for it. Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Judaism recognizes the right name, though not to its full extent, in Yeshua, Jesus. Christianity obviously recognizes the name of Yahweh in Jerusalem, the name, the place where our Lord was crucified, where his name is the name of Jesus. Islam names their God, which is not the God, of the Hebrew scriptures is not the God of the New Testament. Allah was not God at all. But they still say, well, no, but this is, this is holy to us. I found it interesting just this past Saturday, I don't know if you heard this, but on August 21st, while giving a sermon in the Temple Mount's Al-Aqsa Mosque, Sheikh Isam Amira called upon the Taliban in Afghanistan to declare a caliphate and come conquer and liberate Jerusalem. So what's happening in Afghanistan has spiritual implications for the land of Israel, for Jerusalem itself. 
It is always in the Muslim mind. I'm not gonna take a lot of time to get into this, but I, I will tell you this. Next Wednesday night, you're gonna wanna be here. Absolutely, Sharam Hadian is gonna be here, Iranian-born, Muslim at birth and, and upbringing, became a Christian, has a, uh, an amazing uh, ministry now. And he goes around and he talks about the distinctions. And, and I, we've asked him, he, he gave us some options about what to talk about. He'll be here Wednesday night. And he's gonna be talking about the danger of interfaith dialogue, of melding and meshing Islam, Christianity, Judaism into this you know, melting pot. And he will come from a one-time Muslim perspective. You're not gonna wanna miss it. I guarantee you, you will be, you will be packed with information by the time you leave here. And, and Sharam is, is very, uh, he's fun to listen to. He's a very um, strong speaker and a man of integrity. So anyway, even with that, the name, the name, it's, it's the name. God doesn't give his name in vain. We don't take his name in vain. He chose to offer you his name. And when you said, yes, I will take that, you are now taking the name of the creator of the universe upon yourself. Now, this idea of bearing his name can help us understand something. And this is the clarification I was talking about. Turning your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter six. This is a passage, a difficult passage. And we're gonna rabbit trail just for a second because it's so important here. But the Hebrew pastor says something and it has, it's disgruntled Christians for a long time. And it's confused people and it's raised arguments and debate. And I think perhaps there's an answer here for, for what he's talking about and what's really going on when we talk about the name of God upon me, the value, the worth, the significance of that name. So picking up in Hebrews chapter six, verse four, he says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened or literally once for all been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame for soil that, or ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being burned and ends up, or close to being cursed and ends up being burned. So he's making a, a, a comparison of, of rain falling on good soil and bad soil with those who have received the name and those who really have not. How, how can you receive the name of God and produce thorns and thistles in your life. And so it's, it's that age-old you know, debate about once saved, always saved. Can I lose my salvation? This passage, again, has stoked the fires of controversy over that very issue. Can I lose my salvation? Is he saying someone who's come this far and now they've turned around and now they can't be saved again? And, and Christians who stopped going to church for a long season or who turned away from God and chose a lifestyle that was messed up. I've heard more people say when they come back to Jesus, can I? Will he accept me now? Have I gone too far? I'll tell you one thing. If you are asking the question, have I gone too far? You haven't gone too far. If you still have that much flesh on your heart that is not stone cold, 
that you would wonder, would God take me? Of course he will. That's repentance. It's the heart that doesn't even think twice about it. That's the heart that's too hard. That's the person that's beyond the point of repentance. But listen, this is not the point at all. What the Hebrew pastor is talking about, he is not making a case for or against the security of your salvation. That's not the point. How do you know? Look at verse nine. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Right there, he explains it. Look, I'm, I'm making a point. I get that as a pastor. There are times where you're trying to make a point and people just look at you like you've got three heads and they're not getting it. And it's not their fault, it's your fault because you're trying to get it across. And, and then you finally think, oh, this will do it. And you lay it out there. And the next day you get an email from someone saying, so what did you mean by that? And you're like, ah, that's what I was trying. And I think that's where he's at. He, he just lays this thing out to say, here's an extreme for you. How can you possibly even imagine tasting of the Lord, experiencing heavenly things, knowing his good word? How can you, to, to know that and then fall away? I mean, if, if that were to happen, that person could never be saved again. That's crazy. And then again, listen to verse nine one more time. But beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you. This, this is not gonna happen to you, he's saying. And things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. I'm making a point. And the point is simple. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It is not an empty thing you did when you said, Jesus, I accept your lordship over my life. That is not a vain or worthless thing. If you have, if you have received the name of Jesus, bear it with value. It is the most, most worthy decision you will ever or have ever, you'll ever make or have ever made. The decision to receive Christ, bear that with value because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the name of highest value. That is the name you wear, the name you bear as a follower of Jesus. Don't take it in vain. Verse three, he goes on and he says back in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse three, you shall not eat any detestable thing. Now you might feel like, whoa, we just did a left turn there. We just went from the name to the game. <laughs> I mean, what, what's happening? Stay with him. You shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat, says the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the sears, the wild goat, sorry, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Any animal that divides the hoof and has the hoof split in two and chews the cud among the animals, that you may eat. That's the standard. You can eat if it, if it chews the cud, divides the hoof. There's, there, there you go. Now, we looked at these things in depth in Leviticus 11, and I'm not going to go as far into it as we did back then. You can go and listen to that if you're interested in Jewish dietary law. The kashrut is what it's called. Kashrut, which I told you before, means fit for consumption. So the kashrut in Judaism is that which is fit for consumption. Now, on the one hand, this was highly healthy, 
this has kept Jewish people healthier than other people over many centuries. And I, I remember mentioning the Black Plague and times when the Jewish people were not getting sick like everybody else was getting sick. Well, they had the cash root. They were paying attention to the dietary laws. These laws are healthy laws and do uh, uh, go a long way just in keeping people healthy. However, there's more than food at stake here. Did you hear that, Jake? More than food at stake? Yeah. He's not just dishing on diet. To bear the name of Yahweh, I know it's painful. I threw up a little when I said that, I think. Anyway. To bear the name of Yahweh is to be distinct. So he lays out what the Jews today call the cash root so that the Jewish people back then, as they began to eat this way, would have a different diet than the rest of the world. Healthy, yes, but also spiritual. Because this made them unique in the way even they ate their food. Something as common as that, God is saying, don't eat like the common world. Remember what he said in Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And don't walk with a, a worldly divided heart. Matthew chapter five, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we, we feed upon the things that God has called us to feed upon. We understand now that while these dietary laws are good and healthy and you can keep them if, if you'd like to, but we feed on the word. We feed on that which is healthy and good for us. You can say we chew the cud of the word. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse seven, nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among those which chew the cud or among those that divide the hoof in two, the camel and the rabbit and the chiffon, for they chew the cud, though they chew the cud, which is one uh, rule, they do not divide the hoof. They are unclean for you. The pig, because it divides the hoof, but it does not chew the cud. It's unclean for you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, nor touch any of their carcasses. Remember what I said about this. Think back. Way back in Leviticus, we talked about the fact that it's interesting. Camels are unclean. So God declares camel meat is not for you. Camel burgers are off the menu. Camels are unclean. Any learned Pharisee would know that. So when Jesus said, Matthew 23, 24, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now that takes on some meaning, maybe it didn't before. We're not just talking about swallowing a big animal. We're talking about swallowing a huge bit of uncleanness. And Jesus says, that's what you're doing. You're straining out over here, but you're swallowing unclean right and left. See, the Pharisees chewed the cud. They knew the word but their feet were not divided from the world. They, they had scripture down, but Jesus says your approach to God, your walk is unclean, as unclean as a camel. So Revelation chapter one, verse three says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. It's not just hearing, it's hearing and doing. It's Shema, it's hearing with intent to obey acting upon the word of God. Now, pigs divide the hoof, but they don't chew the cud. So there's a division, there's a separation, a picture of separation there, but they, they don't chew the cud. The Himalayan monk, devoted to Tibetan Buddhism, 
man, that guy's divided from the world. He's set apart from the world, but he ain't chewing the cud. He's reading the wrong word, word, the wrong scriptures. To bear the name of the Lord. So this is more application for us. To not take the name of the Lord in vain, but to, to bear God's name in my life with meaning and purpose and significance with full value is to feed on his word and to walk separated from the world. And so Moses applies. Verse nine, he says, these may you eat of all that are in the water. Anything that has fins and scales, you may eat. But anything that does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. What's up with the fish? Well, we talked about before. It's all about how they move through the water. It's all about how they stay in the flow of the water. As Jesus said, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John chapter seven, verse 38. And by this, John says, he was talking about the Holy Spirit. So there's a, an interesting thought there that you can eat anything that, that swims, that flows, it's in the flow of the water. If you're not moving in the living water of his spirit, then his word will become dry and lifeless for you and his name will lose significance in your life. Verse 11, you may eat any clean bird, but these are the ones which you shall not eat. The eagle and the vulture and the buzzard and the red kite and the falcon and the kite in their kinds, whether they belong to Charlie Brown or not, and every raven in its kind, the ostrich, the owl, the seagull, the hawk in their kind, the little owl, the white owl, the great owl, the pelican, the carrion vulture, the cormorant, the stork, the heron in their kinds, and the hoopoe and the bat. All these things, all the teeming life with wings are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. You may eat any clean bird. Now you might think, okay, well, this is just for the birds. What's this about? I don't understand. These are all birds of prey. Remember we talked about this too. They're all carnivorous. They're all devourers of flesh. Embrace yourselves. That's what makes them foul. <laughs> Galatians 5, 17. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit. The spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, yes, these are all dietary laws, sky and surf and turf. But, but again, in all these laws, God, God is also painting picture. He's, he's giving instruction that we here at the end of the ages can look at these things and, and make spiritual application of them. I don't think it's too far a stretch to say what we've been saying here about what does this look like in the life of a follower of Jesus. You don't, it's not that you can't eat meat. It's that you don't desire the flesh. It's not that you can't have a clam, but it's that we think about, well, wait a minute, how are we moving through the living water? It's not that you can't have bacon on your burger. The fact is, do we live as a clean animal with the divided hoof chewing the cud, divided from the world in the word of God? Well, Rick, I don't know, I think maybe you're going a little far on the metaphor there. You know what? No further than the fact that God created us with blood so that blood would be a picture for us, so that we would understand what life is all about 
and have some sense of the sacrifice of Jesus. I think all of this stuff works. These distinctions are for those who bear the name. For Israel, in a very tangible, physical way. For you and for me, in a very true and spiritual way. If you bear the name, this is how you are to be in living life. Verse 21, you shall not eat anything which dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is in your town so that he may eat it. You may sell it to a foreigner for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. So it's not that the, the, the alien or the foreigner, oh yeah, give, give the you know, infested stuff to them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's a distinction. If you are one of my people, you are different. So there are certain things you don't do. You, you can hand it over, that's fine, but you don't do that. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And there it is again. It sits at the very center, at the heart of the kashrut, the Jewish dietary law, the whole milk versus meat mandate that is in play to this very day, and it's that single line, that verse. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk because the possibility is that the meat that you eat could be the cow from which the... the the, 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 meat could be, the milk could be from the cow that is mom to the calf whose meat you're eating and you take it in at the same time and it goes in your stomach and it starts to boil and seethe and you have just committed an, a profane act. That's really, that's why they have that law. And that was not the point, the point at all. And even the old rabbis will say it's not about the milk and the meat, it's about paganism. This was a pagan practice. This was something they did in pagan ritual. Boiling a young goat in its mother's milk was supposed to be pleasing to the Baals. God said, don't do that. Don't be like them. You are to be different. Avoid pagan practice. And then he says in verse 22, you shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. Remember, first Shiloh, then Jerusalem. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock, so you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And then he says, now if the distance is so great for you that you're not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money. Find the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Now listen to what they get to do with the tithe. This is amazing. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever your heart desires, and there, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and all your household. Bring the tithe and have a party. Bring the tithe, celebrate before me. And if it's too far to haul, you know, your firstborn from your herd or your flock, if it's too, haul to, too far to haul your, your grain and your wine offerings and all that stuff to pack it all up and get it on a wagon and get it up to Jerusalem, fine, sell it at home. Take the money, come to Jerusalem, buy and celebrate. But bring the tithe to the place that God says, I commanded. You know what this is? This is the earliest invite to a Thanksgiving dinner. That is exactly what it is. God's saying, come celebrate. Come and be thankful. Because the whole idea behind the tithe is recognizing that everything else came from God as well. If my crops do well, it's because the Lord has blessed me. 
If my herd expands, it's because the Lord has blessed me. If my income increases, it's because the Lord has blessed me. Whatever I have is of the Lord, is from the Lord. The idea of tithing, and this is why I think it, here we go, spiritually, application for the church, I think it's in play today. I think the best thing a follower of Jesus can do, starting point, the best starting point is to tithe. And tithing doesn't mean giving. Tithing means 10%. I think it's a great place, and people say, really, do you really believe in tithing? I, I always say, I think it's a great place to start. Because it will, it will develop in you, it will produce in you a greater generosity. You'll wanna give more, which I know sounds weird. For years and years, I didn't wanna tithe at all. Couldn't imagine tithing, much less tithing and giving on top of that. No, if I'm tithing, that's it, baby. That's my holiness right there. That's as far as I go. The reality is when you tithe, your heart wants to give more. God knows that. When you tithe, you recognize the blessings of, of grain and, and wine and flocks and herds. You recognize income. Well, that's his. That is his to give and it's his to take away. So I bring the first 10% to say, thank you. I, I love the saying, we give 10, we get to keep 90 and the Lord wants us to be thankful and be blessed in that. So bring it to Jerusalem, rejoice. I like how the Living Bible, actually, and I rarely quote the Living Bible, but sometimes it gives a good indication of, of what's being said. For Deuteronomy 14, 23, where it says, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Living Bible translates that. The purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your lives. Do you know what that is? That is not taking the name of the Lord in vain. It is vanity to say I trust in the Lord, but only so far. Trust him all the way. Don't take his name in vain. Honor his name. Learn to fear the name of the Lord your God. But if you would honor his name, there are some people who must not be left out. In verse 27, He says, also you shall not neglect the Levite who's in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. And at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town, the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you. Remember, the Levites didn't get land. They got a spot in a city. They had cities. And then he says, the aliens, the foreigner, care for them, the orphan, the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. That even your work is not a vain thing because you're not taking the name of the Lord in vain because you are taking him at his word and you're providing for those around you. And so Moses specifically raises what is called the third year tithe. Some have argued against this. Some argue against tithing. That's an interesting thought. Let me come back to it. But the third year tithe in Israel was an additional tithe every third year, another 10% that God required of the people for welfare. Seriously, this was God's welfare. That they would provide for the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the stranger, and the Levite as a bonus. Every three years, the extra tithe went to these. This is in addition to the annual 10% that they were to bring every year. And what's interesting in Israel is if you take this and you compare it to Numbers 18, 
which is the priestly portion, not included in the third year tithe. It's a different portion. And you take Deuteronomy 16 that talks about, and we'll see, the festival tithes, and you put it all together, the annual average giving in Israel would come out to about 23%, not 10%. They were required. Now, it was a theocracy. So it's different, you know, we're a, what are we? A democratic republic, something like that. Yeah, we're not even sure anymore. (laughs) It was a theocracy. God is king. And so everything was rolled into this, uh, this annual average giving, this 23%, was part of the whole tax structure for Israel. It included the tithing, but it included other taxes that, that the Lord determined for his people. Note that, the tithe, bring the tithe and buy whatever you want and celebrate. It's for you. This is something we still don't understand about tithing in the church today. It's for you. It will bless you. It will increase your faith. It will increase your generosity. It will increase your joy. No, I'm a lot happier toting along my little occasional 1%. Okay? This is for you. Tithing was part of their tax structure. Now, for those who would argue against tithing today, and we don't have time to have the argument tonight, but... I would just say to you, beware of setting aside faith in favor of your bottom line. Is God capable of doing what he said he would do? When Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well, did he mean it? Do we take his word at full value? Or do we take it in vain? It's a nice sentiment, Lord, but I gotta take care of my own wallet. Consider that. Do I manage my income to invoke the name of my God? We wear the name. We wear the name. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John said, See how great the love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And we are. We're children of God. So live to the worth, the value of the name. Now, skip chapter 15 and go on to chapter 16. Chapter 15, we'll come back to. Actually, go to chapter 15, verse 19, because the last part of the the chapter there, let me just address that quickly. Chapter 15, verse 19, says, you shall consecrate to the Lord your God all the firstborn males that are born in your herd and of your flock. You shall not work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household shall eat it every year before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. So this is now the offering of the firstborn, and they get to share in that. They get to be blessed by it, as, even as they offer it. Verse 21, but if it has any defect, such as lameness or blindness or any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it as a gazelle or a deer. So if you've got some animals and they're imperfect, if you have a firstborn that's got a notch on it or a blemish of some kind, you can eat that, you know, at home in your city. You, you, you bring the best of your flock to the Lord. Only, verse 23, you shall not eat its blood. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. Now, before moving on in theme, Moses repeats here the law of the firstborn in the context of not taking the name of the Lord in vain. In the context of honoring and invoking the name of God, he clarifies, and you can see it here again in, back in verse, uh, I was going to say verse 19, but that's not it. 
He clarifies down in, yeah, it is verse 19. You shall not work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. So what does that mean? It means no sweaty cows and no sheared sheep. Don't bring the cow that you've had laboring out in the field all worn out and tired and dusty and pathetic and say, here's my offering, Lord. Don't shear the sheep and bring this naked sheep to the Lord. What's that about? You're getting something out of it. Don't take for yourself. This is an offering to the Lord. This is the first and the best that we give to the Lord to honor him. Don't give God your old worn out, used up service. This couch is terrible. It's uncomfortable. It's ugly. It's ragged. Maybe the church could use it. How about you go to the furniture store and buy a brand new leather couch and put that in my office? No, I'm I'm kidding about that. An old farmer in a rural community had two cows, and he promised to give one to his local church. He wasn't sure which one, but then one of the two cows got very sick, and he was up all night out in the barn tending the cow, trying to take care of it, trying to to nurse it, and the next morning, the farmer came in, and he told his wife, bad news, honey, God's cow died. Castoffs, leftovers, second best, best, this stuff dishonors the name. When we give God what's left, I had to deal with this. Maybe you have to. I'm not going to pin this on anybody. But when I first started thinking about and considering the whole concept of tithing, and it was such a struggle in my life, and I, I would wait until I paid every bill, made every payment, and then I'd look at what we had left, and I'd say, I can't give 10% of that. I can't survive on 10% less than what I have left. Took me a while to realize God wasn't asking me to survive on what I had left. He was asking me to give the first 10% and then see where we go from there. That is is life-changing. It is mind-changing. Don't give God your leftovers. Don't wait until everything's taken care of and then see what I've got to throw God's way. Because not only will that dishonor the name, but it will not build your faith. It will not bring joy into your life. It it won't bless you. So you can't fleece the Lord. Don't try to pull the wool over his eyes. Chapter 16, verse 1. I think that's it for tonight, but we're going to get now into part 2. So we have part 1, the word of invocation. We invoke the name of the Lord our God. And as we do so, we do so recognizing its value and its worth. We don't take his name in vain. Well, now, a word of celebration, dealing with that next commandment. Observe Shabbat to keep it holy. So keep that in mind. Word of celebration. Chapter 16, verse 1. Observe the month of Abib and, and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God. You might note in your margins, just say Pesach there, or Passover. You, in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock of the, and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to establish his name. You shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with, eat with it unleavened bread. So this is Hag Hamatzot, which is a, another feast, but it's connected intimately with Pesach, Passover. Passover and unleavened bread, Pesach and Hag Hamatzot. He said, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. 
so that you remember, may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Note that day was a day of rejoicing. God wants them to remember when they rejoiced so that they will continue to rejoice. It's kind of like we remember the day we got saved. You know, as, as Paul said, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Do you remember when you actually gave him your life and, and the lift and the joy and the, and the release that happened when you said, I believe in you, Jesus. And what that did to you? Man, live that way. That's a good way to live. And he goes on, for seven days no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. None of the flesh which you sacrifice in the evening of the first day shall remain overnight until morning. You are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name, you shall sacrifice the Passover in the evening at sunset at the time that you came out of Egypt. Listen, such is the patience of the Lord that Jews today celebrate Passover all over the world because they can't celebrate it in Jerusalem because there's no sacrifice, there's no temple. You realize that all of these feasts of Israel are gutted of their worth and value without sacrifice. That's, that's a huge thing. Now, I, I'm not condemning Judaism for continuing these feasts. I think this is part of what's kept Jewish people Jewish people. You know, more than the Jews have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jews, right? So I, I'm not saying that, but such is the patience of the Lord that even though he commanded you do not have Passover anywhere except the place that I choose to put my name, Jerusalem. And Jews around the world and through the centuries since the fall of the temple continue to celebrate Passover. God has not judged that. God has not destroyed Israel because of that. Such is the patience and the grace of the Lord. In those first, uh, well, well, verse seven, you shall cook it and eat it in the place, again, which the Lord your God chooses. In the morning, you are to return to your tents. Six days, you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. What is the seventh day there? It is Shabbat. So on Shabbat. And there's a special Shabbat after Passover week because the calendar shifts and moves. So whatever the seventh day, even if it's not a Saturday, it's Shabbat at the time of Passover and unleavened bread, a, a special Shabbat. And if Shabbat, Sabbath happened sometime during that week, they, they would recognize that too. But the Lord is calling out Sabbath. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day, even in your feasts and festivals. So observe the month of Abib. Abib is the older pre-exile name for this month. So we see it called Abib all the way until you get to Nehemiah and Esther. Nehemiah and Esther start referring to it as the month of Nisan. Nisan doesn't show up in the Bible until Nehemiah and Esther because Nisan is the calendar name that came from Babylon. The entire Jewish calendar today is Babylonian. Interesting. It's taken, that, that's why there's a month of Tammuz, which is a Babylonian pagan child, and, and that's a whole different story. But the month of Abib, I, I like the name of Abib there in verse 1. Abib means in the ear, in the ear. Celebrate the month of Abib, in your ear. No, no, that's not what he's saying. In the ear means the young ears of barley corn or barley grain, young ears of grain. So in the ear, that's, that's where the month comes from. It's, it's the month where the grain shows up and, and you're gonna celebrate Passover in, in the month of the barley grain. 
So Pesach, Passover, commemorated the night that the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. I love also that Pesach anticipated the night Jesus became our Passover lamb. As Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, clean out the old leaven so you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ, our Passover has also been sacrificed. So for all those years, God is so masterful in this. He establishes Passover that they would look back and rejoice, but also that they could look ahead to what was coming, what was promised, the Passover lamb, Jesus himself. Then 50 days later, verse nine, you shall count seven weeks for yourself. You shall begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. And then you shall celebrate the feast of weeks. So here's the second feast he's talking about. First being Pesach slash Hag Hamatzot, Passover unleavened bread. He lumps that together. And now we come to the feast of weeks or Shavuot. Shavuot. Celebrate Shavuot to the Lord your God with a tribute of a free will offering of your hand which you shall give just as the Lord your God blesses you and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite who's in your town and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your midst in the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish again his name. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So second feast, Shavuot, feast of weeks, we call it Pentecost. From Pente, 50, so 50 days later, Pentecost. Shavuot, for the Jewish people, commemorated, looks back upon, uh, commemorates the, the late rains and the spring harvest, but it also is a time that the Jewish people look back on the time Torah was given. Because by all accounts and estimation and understanding, we realize that Torah was given roughly 50 days after Passover, after they came out of Egypt. They were at Mount Sinai. This is right when Torah was being given. And so today, that's even a bigger deal in Judaism. They call it Zaman Matan Torah Tenu, which is the time the Torah was given. And that is, that's the, the substance in Judaism of Shavuot. But the Lord just wanted them to have a, a feast in the late rains and the, and the spring harvest. Bring of your harvest, come and celebrate. Again, it's a, a feast of celebration, but Shavuot wonderfully, we now know, anticipated the giving of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church on Pentecost. Talk about the, the latter rains as the, as the Spirit was poured out on the church. And on that day, remember, 3,000 people were saved. Zaman Matan Torah Tenu, the time the Torah was given, 3,000 people were killed. 3,000 died at the giving of the law. 3,000 were saved at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I, I love that contrast. That's God's heart for all people, the outpouring of his spirit, the, the saving, the, the being born again. And then in verse 13, you shall celebrate third feast, the feast of booths or Sukkot. Sukkot, seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat. So this is now in the fall. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male and your female servants and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your towns. Everyone gets to celebrate. Seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you 
in all your produce, in all the work of your hands, so that you will be all together, what? Joyful! This is a God of joy. This is a God of celebration. This is a God of rejoicing. That's what he wants for his people. And so he lays out these feasts, Passover, and then Shavuot, and now Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, which we studied actually back in January. We did a whole Sunday morning just talking about the Feast of Tabernacles and and the impact of that, what that means for us prophetically. You know that Sukkot is mentioned more than any other feast in the Bible. So as far as God is concerned, this this seven-day campout, this joyful time in Israel is, is more called out. It's more significant just by quantity than any other feast in Scripture. Sukkot commemorated for the Jewish people that 40-year journey through the great and terrible wilderness, their tent life before their promised land life. And now they camp out. And that's what the Lord declared for Sukkot. Camp out. You know, everybody for seven days. Pitch a, a tent and, and a lean-to, whatever you need. Put a table out there. Eat your meals under that with gladness. Let the kids sleep out. Have a great time. Seven days of celebration. Come to Jerusalem and do it right there. They commemorated that journey through the, through the land to the promised land, but it anticipates and will be celebrated in where? What? Anybody know? What? Okay, let me, let me ask it more clearly because I obviously caught you off guard, deer in the headlights. What does Sukkot, when is Sukkot gonna be celebrated? In the millennial kingdom. Yes, it is the kingdom celebration. This is the one more than any other, the seven feasts of Israel that speaks of the kingdom. Get that down, brothers and sisters. That's important. Zechariah 14, 16 says, it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. That is a, an annual party in the kingdom. God, it's so important to God that the people come up and celebrate that we will, throughout that kingdom age, every year go to Jerusalem for Sukkot. Every year celebrate Sukkot. This is gonna be a party we get to join And it's so important, God says, you don't have to come, but if you don't, you're not going to get any rain the next year. Which is interesting to me. If I don't do things the Lord's way, I end up dry. You know, I lose lose the sense of his spirit because I'm doing it my way. He wants you to celebrate. This is about celebration. Amos chapter 9, verse 11 In that day, he prophesied, the Lord says, I will raise up the fallen booth, the fallen sukkah of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Amos 9, 13, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. I mean, the, the, the earth is gonna be so productive and so fruitful in that time, it's gonna blow our minds. We'll barely be done with one set of grapes before the new grapes are coming in and they're ready to be tread upon. Now, let me give you a couple of, just by way of reminder, a couple of visuals here that accompany this feasting at Sukkot every year. And I love these, it's just so cool. I love to just think about and imagine them. So come with me on this for a second. At Sukkot, everybody would go up to Jerusalem. The place would be packed, tents everywhere. Everybody's camping out, everybody's joyful, everybody is celebrating. 
And every morning for seven days, a group of priests were dispatched from the Temple Mount carrying a golden pitcher. Joyfully, they would go down to the Gihon Spring take that picture and dip it in the Gihon Spring, and then they'd make their way proceeding back up to the Temple Mount, singing the Hallel songs all the way as they went. They come into the Temple Mount, come into the Temple Courts, take that golden pitcher filled with the spring water, go to the west side of the altar and pour it into a silver cup. And while they poured, they read from Isaiah. Chapter 12, verse two, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted as they poured out of that golden pitcher. On the eighth day, you Bible students know, they did the same thing. Priests would gather, head down, carrying that golden pitcher. They'd go down to the Gihon Spring, but they didn't dip it into the water. They just skimmed the surface. They didn't get any water at all. And they would walk back up with an empty pitcher, singing the Hillel songs, as usual, come into the temple court, go around behind the altar, and pour nothing into the silver cup. What's that all about? Well, they're in the land now. See, the water libation ceremony was all about water from the rock. Remember the water God provided in the wilderness, seven days, poured out, poured out, poured out. Just remember what God did to provide for us on the eighth day, but we're here now. So we don't have to worry about water from the rock. And, and they, would, they would do this, but this is what's great. In a surprising and stirring moment in his ministry, Jesus, who had been flying under the radar at the Feast of Sukkot, in John chapter 7, from the crowd, right at this moment, I, I think the timing had to be just perfect, Jesus cried out, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You can almost imagine the people watching them pour this empty pitcher and going, son, get me a water bottle. I mean, just the fact that that thing's empty makes me thirsty thinking about it. Jesus waits for this moment and says, hey, I'm the water. I'm the water of life. And there he goes, making it all about himself again. Oh, it's always about you, Jesus. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Which is why at that same Sukkot, John chapter 7, at that same celebration, Jesus was there. And at the very end, on that day, later it would have been that afternoon, the priests had another custom. Not only the water libation ceremony as the people camped out and celebrated, but they had another custom. They, they set up four huge menorahs at four places around the Temple Mount. These were so big that it said the wicks were old used linen robes from the priests. Just the wicks. They had to use ladders to get up and light them. And they would keep them burning all week long. It was said that you could see those massive menorahs burning from hundreds of miles away there on the Temple Mount. Well, on the eighth day, as the lamps were being taken down, John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And there he goes again. 
making it all about himself. I'm so glad he did. I'm so glad that he came along. You know, part of the reason that Jesus came into the world, the word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, part of the reason was to explain to us that it was always all about him. To show us in the Hebrew scriptures, look here, look here. Look here, like the two men on the road to Emmaus walking with Jesus and he begins to open their minds and explains to them all the things written about himself in Moses and the prophets. What a Bible study. And this is what Jesus did in his ministry, explaining to the people, look, you've, you've, you've searched the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It's these that testify of me. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Jesus made it all about himself because Jesus is the promise of the land. He is the promise of the land. Isaiah 49, verse six, is it too small a thing? The Lord says that you, speaking to Jesus, Father speaking to Son, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation, my Yeshua, may reach to the end of the earth. It's marvelous. Now, back to Moses, because with these feasts in chapter 16, we've now looked at, you've got Passover, you've got Shavuot, and you've got Sukkot. There are seven feasts in all, but these three are called the pilgrimage feasts. That's the divine hitch. You get to keep these feasts, but you gotta keep them at my house, God says. Three times a year. Watch this, verse 16. Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's Passover, Hagamatzot, Pesach. At the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot. And at the Feast of Booths, Sukkot and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Now, we first heard this ruling back in Exodus, chapter 23, verse 17, and 34, verse 23. The last time this was spoken, at least in terms of the scriptures, was back at Mount Sinai, 40 years earlier. So Moses is now talking to second-generation Israel, and he's reminding them, look, these three feasts of the seventh got to go up, up to the place where he puts his name. So the place of invocation is now the place of celebration. You gotta go to that place. And notice that Moses says, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God, which presupposes the attendance of the wives as well. Because let's face it, guys, we're no good without them. I've already told Cheryl with this whole Ghana thing, you know, you're coming with me. I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I would be lost in the bush before you could, I don't know, you know I'd just be wandering out somewhere. So God says all the males need to come and by bringing all the males to celebrate, he knows the families are coming as well. It's very smart that way. So he says, all the males, they shall appear before the Lord your God. And uh, yeah, I, can, I can just imagine a camel with a bumper sticker that says real men worship in Jerusalem. Because that's the idea, all the guys would go up. But notice that he also said, and your worship must not be empty handed. Don't come up to the worship of the Lord and go, oh, sorry. He says in verse 17, every man shall give as he is able. So it's fair, it's legit. 
according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Don't come up to worship empty-handed. Empty-handed, the word is rakam. And it translates, don't come up to the Lord empty, poured out, or we might say in vain. Don't come in vain. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't come up without anything to offer of what he has already given to you. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, Deuteronomy 5.11. Ephesians 4.17, Paul says, This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility, in the emptiness, in the vanity of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Paul says, you did not learn Christ this way. Listen, the way we receive him, the fullness and the worth and the value of his name, that's the way we are to live for him. We receive him in value, we live for him in that same value. We don't treat his name as an empty thing. When we worship, we worship in his fullness so we don't come empty-handed. For of his fullness, John 1, 16, we have all received. And grace upon grace, can you put a price tag on that? Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Let me ask you tonight, has the Lord blessed you at all? Give from that. Don't come to worship empty-handed. Oh, he's talking about tithing again, dear. No, I'm talking about heart. Tithing is, is, is an example, sure, is an outgrowth of heart. Don't come to worship empty-handed. It's never about the quantity. If, if God's given you anything, you give from that. If God's blessed you in any way, you bless from that. If he's shown you love, show some love. If he's provided you financially, show some finance. Again, that's between you and him. Boxes in the back. That's, I don't see that. If he's showed you compassion, have compassion on someone else. If he's given you joy, share the joy. Whatever he's given you, give from that. You're not giving from what you've made on your own. You're giving from the fullness of God and what he's given to you because it's not the quantity, it's the quality of the heart that matters to the Lord. Now this I say, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And again, if, if you think we're just talking about tithing and money, you're missing the depth of this. This is not just about what you give financially, this is about what you give with your life which even means showing up at church means you've come to give of yourself, to offer some of what God has offered to you. Don't come to him like a sheared sheep, but as a blessed child with hands full of thanksgiving. Now, we read this, and you might think, man, no sooner have you arrived home than you're planning the next excursion up to Jerusalem. Exactly. Exactly. Let me sum this whole thing up. We're going to stop here tonight. 
God commanded Sabbath rest. Remember the Sabbath day. Observe the Sabbath day. He commanded it to be an integral part of the promised land life. That it wouldn't just be something they did like we do Christmas once a year. It's every day. It's that little shop in Leavenworth that has Christmas ornaments every day. Can you imagine working there? I love that shop. In December, go in the summertime and walk right by. I don't want any Santa Claus in the summer. What are you talking about? He wanted it to be everything, that their, their lives were fully integrated in the value and worth of the name that they had taken on themselves. And so Shabbat was every week, and Shabbat was triannually, and it was every seventh year, and it was every 70th year. Shabbat embedded, listen, embedded, get this, in the rhythm of their lives and faith. God establishes in these commandments for Israel a rhythm even on the calendar, that they lived by this. They get home from one feast, but the next one is just months away. Be planning, get ready, because we've got to go back. It was part of the rhythm. And they would get home and, hey, Shabbat's in three days. Get ready. It's coming back around. And the Lord said, let this be your life, the rhythm of your faith. Is that the case for you? I, I, this, for me personally, this is... This is so convicting because I think about my life. Is What is the rhythm of my faith? How often does it come back around? Is it daily, morning to evening? Is it weekly a couple of times? Is it monthly? What is the rhythm of my faith and how embedded is it in the way I live? Deuteronomy 5.12, listen to this again. He says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Observe it. Now, when we looked at that, we recognized, wait a minute. Moses says, observe it. God said back in Exodus 20, remember it. Remember the Sabbath day. Moses says, observe the Sabbath day. Why the different word? God declares that they remember. Moses knows that remembering to the Hebrew mindset means remembering by observation, by doing. So observe it, be involved with it, engage in it. Interesting that that same word, observe, shamar, in the Hebrew, is also used at the very beginning of chapter 16, verse 1. Did you catch that? Observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God. Observe it. Just as Moses had said, shamar. Shamar the month of Abib for Passover. Shamar the Sabbath day. Shamar Shabbat. To keep it holy. Shamar means to keep. It means to practice, but also, and note this, I didn't catch this before. There's another meaning of the word shamar. Celebrate. Celebrate. Don't just remember it. Keep it. Don't just memorialize it. Practice it. Don't ritualize it. Rejoice in it. Because he's a God of rejoicing. This is his desire for his people Israel. It's his desire for his people the church. And so these pilgrimage feasts were feasts of celebration. And, and you could say, invocation leads to celebration. If I live to the value and worth of the name of God, not taking it in vain, it will cause me to celebrate in life. Invocation to celebration, because calling upon the name of Jesus brings rejoicing to the heart. Amen? 
Two verses and we're done. Psalm 33, 21. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Psalm 89, 16. In your name they rejoice all the day. By your righteousness they are exalted. Invoke the name with honor, value, and you will celebrate Jesus as a lifestyle. That, that is promised land living. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight, and thank you for laying these things out before us. And Lord, thank you for giving breadth and depth to these commands. So much more than a word blurted, so much more than a, a, a day taken off. This is our life. And we see that there is a consistency. What you called Israel to do in, in practice, in the, in the physical, you have called us to put into practice in the spiritual. Who, who has known the mind of the Lord? I mean, glory and power and praise and honor and worth to your name, Lord. Who thinks like you? Who is greater than We see these things and are just absolutely amazed by you. We're amazed, Lord, at what your word tells us you did. We're amazed at who you are. And we praise you tonight and simply ask, Lord, that you would cause these things, this mentality, to truly be embedded in the rhythm of our lives and our faith, that we might call upon your name and celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.